Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in History. I'm one of the hosts on the channel, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Dr. Carter Johnson about his book titled Partition and Peace in Civil Wars, Dividing Lands and Peoples to End Ethnic Conflict, which was published last year by Routledge. Um, In this book, Dr. Johnson examines whether and in what sorts of circumstances partition is an effective means to resolve ethnic and sectarian civil wars. He argues that partition is unlikely to end ongoing civil wars of this kind, but that it can increase the likelihood of preventing recurrence of these civil wars um, as long as the partition is done in a comprehensive way that separates civilians and militaries as well. Um, The book presents a number of in-depth case studies that examine how the model presented in the book um, actually play out. Um, and highlights both the practical aspects as well as the moral aspects of examining this kind of question and um, applying these sorts of things in um, actual practice, um, and ends by examining whether partition could work in some current um, unresolved conflicts, uh, which we may end up talking about in the interview. So thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Johnson, to talk about your book. Dr. Mitchell, thanks for, for having me here. It's a real pleasure. So I wonder if you could start off, please, by introducing yourself, your academic background, to explain how you came to write this book. Sure. I I work at the uh, National Research University, HSE, in in Moscow, Russia. And this book came out of my graduate studies at the University of Maryland College Park. I was back doing graduate studies back 2006, 2007. uh, And uh, this was right as the civil war in Iraq was rapidly escalating. Partition was one of the strategies being considered by the U.S. administration at the time. And I had previously been exposed to some of the partition debates during my master's degree at LSE in London, uh, where one of my profs there, Brendan O'Leary, wrote extensively on the topic. And as I read more, I was pretty, I mean, I guess it's fair to say I was pretty shocked to learn that um, that there was no consensus on partition's effectiveness, no no consensus on, on the ability of partition to end civil wars. No consensus in the policy community, but more importantly, not even in the academic community, which, which is less subject to, to politicization. And so this meant that, you know, even if we set aside the very real ethical concerns about forcibly moving people, which is unquestionably against fundamental human rights, even if we set those aside, it still wasn't clear whether partition even worked. And so here we had this U.S. administration deciding whether to implement a strategy of partition that, that no one could confirm might even bring peace. So I found this pretty extraordinary, and I saw some opportunities to, to design new tests of existing theories and explore new theories that, that might really get at the question about, um, about the effectiveness of partition. You know, does, does partition bring peace? And that led to a few articles and ultimately this book. Great. Well, it's, 
I think a familiar story to a lot of us of kind of coming across a thing and realizing you don't understand it and then you keep going and you keep going and you keep going and turns out some people end up making it into a book. Um, so starting with the problem as you introduce it in the book, um, the quote that really jumped out at me is, quote, the problem of credible commitment is particularly acute for ethno-sectarian conflict. So to understand why you're talking about partition in this particular context um, and how you understand partition to when it is and is not effective, can you explain to us why you argue that the problem of credible commitment is particularly difficult in these contexts? Yes. Yeah, so so the, and the, the problem of critical commitment is, is a real challenge in general in civil wars compared to international wars, as other scholars, Barbara Walter and others, have, have shown that any, any peace agreement, all sides will be living under one state at the end of a civil war with, with one military. And so, so governments have to convince rebels to, to disarm at the end of a, of a civil war. That uh, contrasts with international wars, where once the war is over, each side can return to its side of the border and go on protecting its respective country and and and, uh, and citizens. And so, in in civil wars, this is problematic because once rebels disarm, they lose their their leverage, and and rebels um, are therefore at risk. The state armed forces can attack or arrest the rebels, and the rebels can't fight back, or they can do so only with with very great difficulty regrouping. And I, and I argue that this becomes particularly acute in, in ethno-sectarian conflicts because not only is the, the rebel armed forces at risk if they give up their weapons, but potentially the entire ethnic group. And when a, when a, during the Civil War, after a group's been targeted or, or massacred by, by government armed forces, um, or even if there's a perception that the government armed forces have targeted the ethnic group, it then be, it, it, it creates incredibly low levels of trust in the government. And this aggravates this, this dilemma and puts enormous pressure on the rebels to keep protecting the minority with weapons, um, which, which increases the, the chances of the armed group choosing to fight on rather than implement a peace agreement and, and disarm. So that's, that's this, uh, this acute side of the, of the credible commitment problem for, for ethnic civil wars or ethno-sectarian civil wars. Thank you for explaining um, that. And it's helpful as well, I'm sure, to our listeners to build it on kind of the existing um, research in the field, um, which you do in another way as well. You offer in your book what you call the third generation ethnic security dilemma, um, building on uh, first generation and, of course, second generation ethnic security dilemma. So um, as this does provide a really helpful model for the examination of case studies in your book, can you introduce us to what you argue this third generation is and maybe use an example to explain what the difference might be between second and third generation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that maybe I'll just start with just a quick, you know, the, about the first generation and second generation. Um, you know, the first generation ethnic security dilemma. This this was all about how wars start, um, and scholars created a model whereby ethnic groups during during state breakdown, during this onset of anarchy, um, were akin to in. Ethnic groups are akin to individual states in the international system, um, which could only rely on themselves for security. But each, so each step that ethnic groups would take to make themselves feel more secure, such as increasing their weapons or, or self-defense forces, would make other ethnic groups feel less secure. And in this context, you know, even, even defensive maneuvering can lead to increased security for all and, and eventually can, can lead to the onset of, of the civil war. And the archetypal situation 
was the collapse of, of Yugoslavia with Serbs, Croats, and Bosniaks left to defend themselves as, as the Yugoslav state collapsed. So the, the big factors in that are, are, are sovereignty, these borders, demography, can we, how, how are groups intermingled and, and, and how does that drive insecurities and, and, this, and, and anarchy, so sovereignty, demography, and, and anarchy. Um, the second generation, so that was you know, how wars start. The second generation is more about how wars end. Um, and it, it draws on the same issues of sovereignty, demography, and, and anarchy. And this second generation assumed that groups are fighting uh, because, uh, because they wanted to protect their own kin. And that, that those wars would continue until ethnic kin were more or less separated into distinct territorial, uh, territorially concentrated ethnic groups. Um, and so the, the, the big focus on how to get wars to end was separating those ethnic groups into these self-defense territories, mini states or quasi states or real states. And that's how wars, that's how wars would end. The third generation looks at how wars recur. And so, you know, it's, it's focus is really, the book's focus looks more at you know, what happens in the first five to 10 years after a, after a civil war ends. And it argues that, that, Wars renew for, for a number of reasons. And, and I, I look at those same three factors, the demography, sovereignty, and, and anarchy. Um, uh, you know, I, you know, I, so I, I start with the, with the assumption that wars end for a number of reasons, um, but, uh, but partition, if it's reached, will allow, will allow peace to, to survive longer. Um, most importantly, the, the third generation argues that wars are not fought and do not recur because of ethnic hatred or intransigence or hostile ethnic identities, that, uh, that these, those types of emotions at the end of an ethnic war can lead to violence, but, but low level, not large scale, not, not political violence that, that leads to war. And so... All right. So that's a really helpful sort of theoretical explanation of the difference between second generation and third generation, as well as first, that they sort of look at different angles of this. Um, and to perhaps help our listeners who are a little bit less familiar with this literature, would you be able to give us an example of maybe a particular war where second generation will look at it this way, whereas third generation might look at it this way? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, you know, if we continue drawing on those the wars of, uh, of Yugoslavia, the breakdown, the you know, several wars that, that emerged from that, from that state collapse, if we look at Kosovo, um, the second generation, as, as, as war began between Kosovars and, and Serbs, or at least a Serb state and factions within, within Kosovo is probably a, a more accurate way to put that. Um, as, as, that as that war broke down, um, the second generation would look at how we can end that war by separating ethnic groups. And that's, that's putting putting uh, ethnic Serbs into more concentrated regions of Kosovo and, and Serbia. Um, and, and same with, with Kosovars or ethnic Albanian uh, Kosovars, putting them into uh, regions that, uh, that are more, more ethnically concentrated and, and not intermingled with, with other uh, Serbs and Kosovars. And, and this would allow the war to de-escalate and bring about peace. That's a that's a second generation. Um, yeah, that that's controversial for a, for a number of reasons, but but that's that's it in a in a in in a you know simplified model. The third generation would look not at 
not at how we bring about peace, but but what happens after, say, 1999, once peace has been established, once you've had, and, I mean, in this case, there was an international intervention um, and, and a de facto independence of, of Kosovo. And it looks at what factors might lead to wars to re-erupt um, in, uh, in, in between, within Kosovo and between, uh, between Kosovo and, and Serbia. And the main, the main areas where, where civil war can erupt there tend to be these, these border regions. It tends to be where ethnic minorities are on one side or another of this newly partitioned territories. Okay. Um, it, so then how does partition in your argument prevent recurrence? As, I mean, partition, partition helps in a number of ways. In one way, it helps with, the, with this, uh, this lack of the, the, the failure of credible commitment, the inability of a state to, to credibly commit not to, not to harm uh, an ethnic minority or to implement a peace agreement um, is, is, this, is this big problem in civil wars. And it, on the one hand, partition helps to address that issue because it uh, it gives independence to, uh, in this case, to the ethnic to, to the Kosovars, and so Pristina has independence. It keeps its, the rebels become the new army, and you defend. They're able to defend uh, themselves against uh, against any 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 uh, uh, Serb armed forces, and therefore it eliminates the problem of credible commitment. You, you basically turn it into an international conflict. Um, so that on the one hand helps. The second is ethnic group concentration for a variety of reasons um, consistently shows uh, a, a high likelihood or an increased likelihood of, uh, of, of, of rebellion, of, of, of renewed civil wars. And during, during ethnic wars, groups for a variety of reasons tend to uh, become increasingly concentrated and so both of these dynamics increase the likelihood of, of rebels being able to, uh, ethnic groups being able to rebel against the state in a, in a post-war environment. And again, that, that problem disappears uh, with, with partition. Now, this third area of where ethnic minorities are located becomes tricky. And if, if uh, ethnic minorities on either side of the border exist, then there are a, a lot of incentives uh, for violence to, 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 to recur. Either the homeland state, in this case, the example of Serbia, wanting to defend or protect ethnic Serbs that are located in Kosovo, or vice versa, the Kosovo, Pristina, wanting to, wanting to uh, protect ethnic Kosovars that are located in, in, in Serbia. So in this case, the, the, the partition theory that I present in, this, in, in the book suggests that it's really important to either eliminate those minorities by redrawing borders around them um, to, uh, in, in, the case of, in the case of Kosovo, it would, it would allow the, uh, the northern part, north of uh, where, where the city of Mitrovica and, and up north where the ethnic Serbs are located to break off and rejoin uh, Serbia would be one way to redraw the border to allow this concentrated ethnic minority uh, to, to, uh, to disappear from, from Kosovo. Um, this would be one way to, to, uh, to eliminate that problem. Um, the other way to address it is trying to get rid of anarchy and trying to get rid of anarchy means building state institutions. So if, if Northern Kosovo could concentrate, and this is something the European Union has been doing, uh, could help to build state institutions, build strong law enforcement, uh, in, in that region, 
that is another possible alternative where, where you could uh, uh, prevent uh, a civil war recurrence. Okay. And you've already sort of hinted at it a bit in the different elements. Um, but one of the aspects of your book that was, um, I think, a really useful addition to the discussion around partition is you differentiate um, essentially between comprehensive partition and maybe other less um, holistic methods, essentially. So as you've given us already a few sort of tidbits towards this, um, what is comprehensive partition and how does that, in your argument, better address or better um, reduce aspect uh, potential for recurrence? Yeah, um, yeah, it's an important, really important uh, question. I mean, the, the comprehensive partition, partition is typically only discussed as a, as a border that's being drawn, a line that's being drawn to, to separate uh, the warring units. Uh, and, and this, by just drawing a, by just drawing a border, you run the risk of having these uh, ethnic minorities on on either side of on either side of the border that become particularly problematic when uh, when states are weak, and and after civil wars, virtually all states are are by definition weak. You've had state breakdown. You've had you're, you're in a in a position of, uh, of of state fragility, and so in the in the analyses that we've seen from other scholars, um, we've seen. Uh, partition alone being not particularly effective at preventing civil war recurrence. Uh, the one exception to that is uh, uh, an, an article that uh, that Chapman and Roeder uh, wrote um, that looked at having partition, but having partition with international recognition, and partition with international recognition appears to to uh, to allow for for uh, for peace to endure longer. Um, than uh, than other forms of, of partition or other forms of, of civil war termination. Um, that the data in that has also been subject to a lot of critique, and so there, there's a lot of controversy surrounding that. But in general, just drawing a new border, just having partition, just ending this uh, this problem of credible commitment uh, through partition doesn't appear to be sufficient to uh, to allow peace to endure. But if you if you remove the ethnic minorities. And, and I say that with hesitancy because one of the big controversies around partition is, is forced uh, population movements. Um, and, and this is, uh, you know, th- this is a, a horrific feature um, that, that has been present in you know, every, every century that we know of these you know, forced population movements um, with, with horrific results. Um, and, uh, and so it, I mean, this is really something that no no government, um, uh, no, no government currently, certainly no Western government and, and, and most, uh, most international actors are not going to be pursuing uh, forced population uh, transfers or movements. So eliminating the, eliminating the minority can be done in, in a number of ways. And I've discussed some of those redrawing borders. Um, uh, it may be possible to draw a border initially that, uh, that, that doesn't allow uh, for for many uh, ethnic mi- ethnic minorities to be left on the wrong side of the border, but that type of comprehensive partition appears to uh, to allow peace to endure after the end of uh, of a civil war. Got it. I think the the comprehensive piece is something that um, I know in my own research in civil wars uh, was something that always felt a bit lacking in discussions around partition. So I found that personally a really valuable part of your. Um, 
of your theory. And so to move from the sort of theoretical side, now that we've established all the things you're contributing, um, you also have a number of case studies, which were really interesting to demonstrate how these things can play out in real life. So I want to ask you um, about some of them, how they sort of play out. Um, And so first off, uh, I'm definitely not going to pronounce this correctly, but forgive me. Um, What does the case study of Abkhazia tell us about your theory of partition? Now you pronounce it really well, so you you have some hidden talents there. <laughs> um, uh, Abkhazia showed you know a couple of really interesting sides, and and I learned a lot uh, through my through my field research there. I was there for for about six months in total over over a few years, um, and you know, the the first thing it showed uh, most importantly is that that partition as as a tool to end ongoing civil wars and, and this is this is usually where partition is is proposed when we have these these very violent conflicts uh, a lot of bloodshed a lot of a lot of um a lot of incentives to, to do something uh, that's usually when partition is is tabled and that you know, that was the case in iraq when i began when i began looking at it and has been uh, the case in a number of other conflicts including sudan you know, we, we need to do it now and, and the case of Abkhazia showed that, that the partition simp- simply doesn't work uh, as, a, as a tool to end ongoing bloodshed, to, to end ongoing violence, at least in the case of Abkhazia. Of course, uh, you know, Abkhazia is only one, one case, but um, what I discovered when I was there, I, I went there to look at, this was a, a civil war that, ex- that, that occurred within uh, the newly independent Georgia at the end of the former Soviet, uh, uh, at, at the end of the Soviet collapse. Um, a war that took place in the northwest of Georgia, um, and I went there to look at the partition that occurred in 1993-1994 at the end of the Civil War. So I went there to, to understand whether I was looking at patterns of, of migration and violence, and I wanted to understand whether it was that separation of ethnic groups that led to this peace that emerged in 1993-94. Uh, the, the, the 1994 partition left virtually no ethnic Abkhaz in Georgia and virtually no ethnic Georgians within Abkhazia. So it was this, it was this real kind of um, uh, clear-cut example of, uh, this, uh, of an ethno-sectarian conflict ended with partition, brought about peace. And so was it partition that, that brought it around? And I want to do this process tracing to try to understand that. And what I discovered, uh, to my surprise, was there there had been a uh, an earlier, much earlier partition that took place already by December 1992. By December 1992, the territories uh, on their own, as 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 a, the dynamic, almost exactly as the ethnic security dilemma would predict, these population groups had had separated on their own, either driven out of their their homes and land, or had had left their homes in you know, seeking security among territories that were controlled by, by their own ethnic kin, by rebel groups um, that, uh, that, that claimed to represent them. And this, this was uh, kind of prototypical ethnic security dilemma, dynamics at work. Uh, uh, the groups had all separated. They, they'd even set up a, a um, I was really surprised to see a, uh, a commission was set up in December 92 to say, uh, you know, if you are an ethnic Georgian and you're behind enemy lines uh, control and territory controlled by the Abkhaz, we will let you leave. And likewise, if you're if you're an ethnic Abkhaz and you live in 
territories controlled by by the ethnic Georgian uh, um, armed forces, uh, and you want to go to to the Abkhaz controlled territories, you can do that. There was a commission. People were able to write letters. I want to leave. They were collected. Commissions agreed to the movements, and they and they allowed these groups to leave. So so we we are confident that the ethnic groups were completely separated, and this was done. This confirmed what uh, what civilians had said on the ground through interviews on, on both sides of the border. People disagreed on why people left, but both of them agreed that these groups had separated. Uh, and and so here, here we have this partition, December 92, but the, but the war doesn't end. In fact, the war escalates and eventually you have more deaths uh, occurring much later by, by September 93 um, than, than you had uh, uh, in, the, in the war up until that point. And so... Uh, so what we learn from that is that um, people that are that the the armed groups are fighting for a lot more than just uh, protecting their ethnic kin. There are a lot of other goals. Wars are very complicated, a lot of actors, and uh, and this this kind of simplified understanding of of uh, of civil war dynamics being driven only by ethnic security concerns is, uh, is, is insufficient to understand a war. And so the, um, those territories that had that partition that had occurred broke down in, in September, 1993, uh, the ethnic Abkhaz side got the upper hand in part through support from uh, various, various Russian uh, forces and in part because of strategic failures uh, within, within Georgia um, uh, the Georgian government itself, there was an internal intra-Georgian civil war that broke out, um, and, uh, and the government in Tbilisi turned to Russia as well for, for help uh, to, uh, to prevent its, its own demise. And, and all this led to Ab- Abkhaz forces gaining the upper ground, um, taking over territory where ethnic Georgians had been, had been living, and leading to a, a huge flight of, of civilians and, and, a, and, a lot of, uh, and a lot of deaths. And so, you know, one of I think yeah that the the big the big takeaway there was that that you know, partition partition didn't work and it's unlikely to work in in other in other uh, conflict zones uh, when when violence is high. And this is what you show again through a number of additional case studies. As you said, that one was almost um, it played out almost exactly as you predict. Um, so could you introduce us to your cross national test and explain? how you built on previous work and sort of what that particular test tells us about your arguments around partition. Yeah, thanks. I mean, the, the this, uh, th- that test was, was one of the first things that I did on partition. And, and it was, it was from that test that I, I picked the case studies, which were, which were kind of outliers from the, from the, from the statistical analysis that, um, I, I started looking at, uh, at the cross national study because I saw some opportunities to to better examine some of the some of the other theories about partition um, that that were that were out there, um, a lot of the other I mentioned earlier that a lot of the the other studies on partition had looked only at drawing new uh, new new borders. Now, if we if we draw a new border and we consider that partition, does that bring about peace? And the answer was no. But the the second generation ethnic security dilemma um, had looked at. Uh, at, at separating uh, ethnic groups, this de- this very important demographic aspect, and that wasn't included in any of the the statistical analysis. So that that led me to look at this case study of of, uh, of George Abkhazia, and then 
uh, once we understood that it, it won't help to bring about peace, maybe we can look at whether it can help to, to prevent civil war recurrence. So looking at taking a cross-national study of, of all civil wars, all ethnic civil wars around the world, that's, that's the, the universe um, of, of cases uh, in the second, post-Second World War. And, and I looked at uh, if we draw a new border and also look at the degree to which ethnic groups had been separated or not as a result of that, of that uh, new partition line being drawn. I tried to understand whether, there, whether the, the demographic separation of ethnic groups would lead to an increased likelihood of peace or not. And indeed, the more ethnic groups are separated, the more likely peace is to be maintained um, at, the, at, at the end of a civil war. So that that was the that was the crux of the of the of the cross national study that uh, um, at least at least looking out five years and even looking out ten years, uh, the more you separate ethnic groups through partition, the more likely you are to uh, to maintain peace. And so, how does that then apply to your comparison, where you talk about how war does recur between Georgia and Abkhazia, but not between Moldova and Transnistria? So. How, what do those, what does that comparison mm-hmm. sort of tell us about mm-hmm. this idea of separation? Yeah, the the, um, the Abkhaz uh, Georgia conflict that ended in ninety three ninety four um, with with this partition, this complete partition, this comprehensive partition where ethnic groups are, are separated as well through through you know uh, um, you know horrific civilian casualties um, uh, that emerged as, as a result of that partition, but but the partition. Was comprehensive. Uh, there were there were no ethnic Abkhaz in in, in Georgia and and no ethnic Georgians in, in Abkhazia. Um, if you look, so that that should predict peace, and and the, the results showed almost that. But by five years out, ethnic uh, um, the the Abkhaz Georgian border, they experience a, a conflict renewal, and. And that that should challenge the theory. That should say, well, that, that doesn't fit because you've had this comprehensive partition. How does conflict recur? Well, if you look at what happens between 1994 and 1998, uh, a there's a a return of ethnic Georgians to Abkhazia. But 40,000 by 1998, about 40,000 ethnic Georgians have returned to southern Abkhazia to a territory called called Gali, and it's in that it's in that region. That conflict recurs in 1998. Um, ethnic uh, Georgian rebels are uh, slowly increasing their territorial control in, this, in, in southern Abkhazia, and, and Abkhazia effectively loses control of that of that territory altogether. And and uh, the Abkhaz government, the de facto Abkhaz authorities there, uh, make a decision to send in the tanks to break the the peace agreement that had been reached in 1994. And retake that uh, retake that territory. That leads to more ethnic cleansing. Those forty thousand ethnic Georgians that had returned to southern Abkhazia are, are expelled, um, and uh, and 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 conflict conflict renews. Um, what that what that shows um, is this problem of 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 having mixed demography and what that what how that can play out in in territories that have very weak states. I think one of the important takeaways that really differentiates the, the third generation from the second generation ethnic security dilemma is the cause of that violence. 
in the, the second generation, we would expect violence to recur because of fears and insecurities and hatred and ethnic intransigence between ethnic groups. This, these ethnic Georgians that are living in, uh, are mixing in, in, uh, in Abkhazia. Um, but what we see is not, not problems with ethnic identities, but rather with, with weak states. And, uh, and, and, and when, when ethnic Abkhazia, the, the, the state uh, itself is extremely weak um, at, the end of the, at the end of the war, and they're unable to, to control the territory. And there are a lot of incentives within, uh, within Georgia to try to move back in and retake territory in, in, uh, in southern Abkhazia. And it's these state actors and rebels um, that are, are moving into, uh, moving into uh, southern Abkhazia that are really the, the, uh, the instigators of the violence rather than any kind of, uh, any kind of inter-ethnic uh, uh, conflict or, or intransigence uh, as such. And this contrasts um, with Moldova, because Moldova has a, a partition. Moldova experiences this, uh, a civil war in 1992. It lasts you know, a very short period, less than a year. Um, you have about 1,000 dead um, and ends in a partition with uh, the eastern part of Moldova, Transnistria, gaining de facto independence, um, not recognized by anybody, but, but they control their own borders. Uh, and there is a huge uh, ethnic um, Moldovan or ethnic Romanian. There's uh, you know, a, a, a historical and, and controversial background to that, but let's say ethnic uh, Romanian, um, a Romanian-speaking population within, uh, within Transnistria. And the, the, the comprehensive partition theory would say that if you've had partition, but you have these large ethnic groups that remain on, on the other side of the border, in this case, Romanian speakers within Transnistria and a large number of Russian speakers uh, in Moldova, that this, this uh, could or should lead to uh, uh, um, renewed violence. And it doesn't because, uh, because I argue in, from, the, from the case studies that the, the, the issue of anarchy, this important aspect of anarchy, the, this important issue of, of state breakdown, didn't really take place in the, in the civil war of, of Moldova. That 1992, the civil war that erupts, it's not a, a, it's not a traditional a civil war um, that, that emerges in, in, uh, in, in a given country because of the unique way that the Soviet Union broke down. Transnistrian authorities had already secured uh, their territory Back in 1990, 1991, they had, they had secured the borders. And 1992 is when Moldova has independence. Moldova gains uh, a, uh, you know, its first armed forces. The Ministry of, of Defense is only created in, in, in spring of 1992. And, and they go to try to, to secure uh, uh, their territorial control over Transnistria and fail. Um, they they uh, attempt to retake uh, uh, Transnistria. This is a territory that is within the internationally recognized borders of Moldova. They fail to do so. Uh, uh, Russian uh, armed forces are, are already located uh, in Transnistria, help the, uh, the separatist regime to defend uh, their own borders. And, and you don't really have the same type of destructive power uh, that, uh, that usually accompanies civil war. And in that sense, Transnistria already had... Um, its security services and, and, and police were, were, were in firm control of, of Transnistria. And there wasn't uh, a type of, any type of, uh, of, of, of security dilemma that, uh, that emerged and, and uh, uh, fear or, or, or hatred or, or, um, or flight of, uh, of ethnic groups as a result. 
Interesting. Thank you for explaining. Um, I think uh, the case studies are going to be really interesting to people because it's not often that we see sort of a theory end up, you know, playing out in such a easily viewable way. Um, and this also tells us something not just about partition generally, but also about this idea of comprehensive partition that you discussed earlier, um, which I think has really interesting implications, obviously theoretically, but also in terms of policy. Do you want to speak a little bit about what you think the policy implications are of your research? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the short policy memo, I mean, the book is on, is on partition and, and, and certainly the theory is about how partition can, can prevent war recurrence. But the, the, I mean, ironically, the short policy memo would, would still be for me, you know, it, it would be don't try partition. Um, the, the most discussions around partition are about stopping ongoing wars. And here, chapter three is really key because it shows that the partition doesn't work for the purposes that, we're, that we usually talk about it with. Um, partition can work to prevent uh, civil war recurrence, but you, but, but, but you need this ethnic separation in order to have it succeed. And since most countries will not pursue forced population separation because of these gross human rights violations, it makes it very difficult to, to create uh, or to see an environment where, where, partition is, where, where partition can succeed in the way that, uh, in the, in, in the way that it's, it's presented. Um, uh, the, the exceptions to this are either where it would be very easy to redraw borders um, and I, I'll go back to that example of, of uh, Kosovo and, and Serbia now. There were discussions a couple of years back of the possibility of having um, the, uh, the, the ethnic Serb uh, territorially concentrated group in North Kosovo break off and, and join with, uh, with Serbia, as well as potentially the, the ethnic uh, Kosovo areas in, in uh um, in south, uh, in, in j- just southeast of, of Kosovo, to rejoin with uh, with uh, with Serbia, um, and you know, if I was taking up from a from a policy perspective, I'm looking at that case, the the Kosovars that are um, the Albanian speaking Kosovars that are, are living in in uh, southeast uh, Kosovo. Um, when I'm looking at them, they are they are under. Uh, the, the, the territorial control of Serbia, where, where Serb armed forces, the police control that territory. And so making a, a shift or redrawing the border in that context um, would, would likely increase uh, the risk of violence. Whereas uh, the Serbs located in, in, in the north and northwest of, uh, of Kosovo are more or less, this is... Uh, are, are more or less under 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 the control of of, uh, of ethnic Serb uh, security forces, and so allowing that territory to break off and, and join Serbia would likely not uh, uh, increase uh, the risk of uh, the risk of violence. And so, um, the only the only way that we can see partition succeeding is when you have these more or less neat uh, demographic separations. Or where you're able to really bring up and uh, reinforce uh, uh, state institutions, and this is a, a you know very long and, and time-consuming and, and expensive uh, of, uh, expensive investment, and and can really be done without the use of uh, of partition at all. And if you're prepared to invest in the institution, state institutions, um, uh, uh, in in a given country, um, you should be able to. 
to to prevent uh, civil war recurrence without even the need without even the need for a partition. And so, you know, ironically, I'm in a position of of uh, of having of writing a book on partition and, and not recommending partition as a as a policy solution, just because it it uh, it can succeed, at least in in the way in the analysis that I've done, in only a, in only a very narrow number of of cases. Well, as we say in research, you know saying you're not going to do a thing um, or you shouldn't do a thing is actually really helpful. And I think the book uh, usefully demonstrates why calls to, oh, just do a partition, that will solve the problem. Um, You go beyond just saying, "Mm, I'm not sure that's a good idea. You actually conclusively lay out exactly how high the bar is for that to make sense um, and therefore revealing that it's probably not a bar that actually can be reached. Um, So that's a very helpful policy contribution, even if it's not about enacting something. Um, To move to my classic penultimate question that I ask every interviewee, given that we obviously listen to the book and we read the book, but you are the one really getting into the details of it, um, and you've done a lot of different kinds of research as well, so was there a particular something surprising that you came across in the research process? This can be a big realization or a small interview that sort of just was surprising to you. Um, maybe it's something that didn't even make it into the book. Um, but this is the sort of behind the scenes thing that I think mm-hmm. we're always interested in as researchers is kind of a bit about the process of it. Um, so was there anything in particular that was surprising to you? I mean, it's one of the things I love about field research are the, the number of surprising things uh, that that you learn and and the questions that come up and yeah, I mean there were there were a ton of them and uh, um, you know if, if I were, one that comes to my mind immediately is um, is a, is speaking with several people in Abkhazia who referred to the challenges of of getting along with with uh, with ethnic Georgians at the end of the war immediately post-war people talking about even even hearing ethnic Georgian language um, what would would uh, you know fill them with with anger and rage and and I, you know I think we're seeing a lot of article today in the in the New York Times about uh, ethnic Ukrainians um, and and uh, being filled with, with hatred towards uh, not only the Kremlin but towards Russians themselves and so that this this was a you know very widespread feeling and this is this is common in in a lot of uh, in a lot of conflict zones. Um, this doesn't necessarily talk about uh, uh, emerging you know, war necessarily or violence, but this 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 um, this feeling of of, of hatred and, and anger. And then years later, saying you know now when I hear ethnic um, ethnic Georgian language, there there tended to be um, a, a large number of um, of migrant laborers. Georgian migrant laborers that were working in Suhumi on, on construction sites when I was there. Um, them saying, look, you know, over time, uh, I, uh, and this was, this was only 10, 15 years after the conflict. Um, uh, uh, you know, it, it was fine to be side by side and it was fine to, to, to start to, to reengage uh, ties very quickly. So this, the sense of, of the impossibility of living together, um, after uh, uh, after a horrific uh, case of of, uh, of interethnic violence, could change relatively quickly um, uh, in in you know a relatively short period of time with, without special programs designed to uh, you know track to diplomacy or bringing people together. 
there was there is some kind of a process that took place even under very bitter conditions um, that allowed uh, some at least some of these uh, you know this is not this is not a systematic study this is anecdotal um, but uh, people that that couldn't handle hearing ethnic Georgian, uh, hearing Georgian language suddenly, well, you know, may, maybe I can do that now. And so there is some kind of a process there that, that I, I think needs to be explored further. Um, so that was one that I thought was interesting. You know, another thing that I thought was interesting was the, you know, the ethnic security dilemma itself, which is a, a much maligned theory in the literature. Um, I, I, you know, I was really surprised to see this uh, this, uh, the, the civil war, the violence in 1992 and 1993 within, uh, within Abkhazia, I was really see, really surprised to see just how much it fit with, with the theory. Now, it, the, as I mentioned earlier, the, the, the war doesn't end. So the theory doesn't, doesn't, uh, doesn't predict, uh, the, the, the violence is going to end when the, when the groups separate, but the process of separation, how these groups were, were separating, either forced out or fleeing on their own in anticipation of violence, all of that fit, you know, almost to a T. And, and I certainly didn't expect that. I, I expected to go into the field and and find out that, you know, this, the, the theory, they got it all wrong. And instead it was, well, you know, they, they got a lot of this right. They, they didn't predict the, the final conclusion right, but the, 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 these processes were were, uh, were very much in line with, with what the theory would predict, which was, which was pretty surprising. Interesting. Those are really great um, insights. That's why I always ask this question. I think we learn a lot of interesting things from it. Um, and to move then to my final question, which does always seem a little bit mean to ask people that have just finished a massive book. Um, what are you working on now or next? Uh, you know, it's, it's actually that, that first, um, that first surprising thing that I found that's, that's what I'm running with right now, which is, which is looking at this de-escalation of, of, uh, of identity salience. We spend a lot of time looking at, at how identities become more salient during, during violence, during periods of violence. People that said, you know, I never felt Croat or, or Jewish, you know, until the violence, uh, began to be perpetrated against me. Uh, how these identities these grow in importance. Um, IR language would say become hardened. Comparativists may say become more salient. Um, but we don't really focus a lot on how how identity becomes less salient, de-escalates, and that's the, that's the process that I'm trying to uh, look at right now. Um, what happens uh, after violence has taken place, and when does when does identity uh, desalience occur, and and what what are the implications of that for for violence and for war? Interesting. Well, I definitely think in my own experience, that is a gap in the literature. So I will definitely be following that research. Um, hopefully it'll end up in a book and you can come back on the podcast. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I'd love that. But in the meantime, uh, listeners can read your current book, which again is titled Partition and Peace in Civil Wars, Dividing Lands and Peoples to End Ethnic Conflict. It was published uh, last year by Rutledge. Uh, Dr. Carter Johnson, thank you very much for joining us today. Great speaking with you. Thanks very much.